Welcome to the Safe Topics Podcast. I'm Curry. I'm here with my co-host, Sean. Hello. Hey, Sean. We're changing things up a little bit, playing around with our format. We, um, we want to have conversations that are a little more focused, go into a little more detail and depth. While we still want to get back to our one-word conversations, uh, we're excited to explore this new direction. And in this format, we are being now supported by the Miracosta Innovation Grant from the Miracosta Foundation. And so we're very grateful to have the opportunity to use those funds to, um, you know, make sure that our team members are taken care of, and then also to up the production value for each one of our episodes. And as Curry said, we're going to be a little bit more intentional with giving you some tools and some tips and tricks on how to think about your teaching and to implement new strategies if they work for you. So yeah. we're going to we're going to start here in our first episode with talking about UDL which is uh, universal design for learning. That's right. That's right. And so you can think of these well what we're hoping these will be are like little mini flex workshops, little, you know, pedagogy uh, check-ins maybe. And we're also hoping that, you know, students will benefit from these as well. So we'll, we'll kind of see. And as far as um, universal design goes, you know, uh, I guess two things, Sean, and uh, uh, universal design is something that really has been influencing our, teacher, our teaching on campus as all of our classrooms are accessible. Um, um, we have a range of modalities, um, um, technologies, et cetera, in the classroom to use to for teaching and learning. Um, but now that we're all teaching remotely, we're also all, well, I think we're all hybrid teachers now, right? Um, uh, to one extent or another, you can't put this back in the bottle, right? Um, so talking about universal design, I think is highly applicable as we all continue to um, do our best to teach remotely. But then as we also start to think about our teaching going forward, even when we get back to the to campus. Right. And maybe for those who are unfamiliar with that term, universal design for learning, we're talking about multiple ways of accessing content, multiple ways of presenting content, multiple ways of assessing student learning. And now that, as Curry said, we're all online, we are looking for those strategies all the time. How are we going to engage on Zoom? How can I stay connected to my students? Do my assignments really translate the activities and assignments that I've had face-to-face? -face? Are they translating to an online environment or what do I have to do? So in this pivot, it's the perfect time for us to even rethink the different ways that we deliver content and assess our students. And so with that in mind, we're gonna have some people on that are uh, professionals and, and, and experts in this space from our DSPS office. We're gonna have students on and how they experience you know, different modalities and different types of assignments and content delivery. So we're really excited to get into this topic so we can all learn more about it. That's right, that's right. And we're going to really take the next several episodes to dive into UDL, Universal Design for Learning, from, from a few different angles, um, accessibility, equity, um, um, et cetera. And, and, but Sean, you, you said that you know, the real goal of UDL uh, is to increase access, right? And to increase lots of different ways to engage. That all sounds like good stuff. On the Safe Topics podcast, we want to talk about dangerous stuff, right? Um, um, this is a place for us to really hash things out that are a little controversial. So what, what is controversial about universal design for learning? Well, I think there's a few ideas. When you present this idea of multiple pathways to learning, multiple modalities, content delivery styles, 
all of these different things, different assessment styles, wow, that sounds like a lot of work, right? So I think workload will come to the front of people's mind in, in terms of how they're uh, thinking about this. And it does, it does sound like a lot of work. And I hope we demystify the process a little bit through talking about this with uh, different groups and, and really see if it is more work or is it just a part of our work and maybe that front loading where it seems like a little bit burdensome will pay off with tremendous dividends, you know, for uh, semesters to come for our classes and for our students. Right. And right in the middle of you talking, I think my outlook thing deemed, dinged, which I think is going to sort of, you know, there's a, a, a Pavlovian response to that, right? I get a little anxious <laughs> in my stomach. Think, well, sp speaking of that, right, like uh, sometimes the, the outlook um, barrage in your inbox can feel like a checklist and maybe UDL feels like that to, to people too. Can you talk about that? Yeah, oh, totally. I mean, so uh, uh, sometimes in workshops when accessibility is, is sort of, you know, the focus, it, it can feel like that's the takeaway. Like, oh, okay, I now have a list of things to check off. It's, it's, it's less about a conversation or feels less about a con like uh, we're talking about teaching and learning and pedagogy. I'm more being told from this sort of top-down perspective what I must do. Um, and I think that can also, uh, for some folks, they're, they're, that's a source of resistance um, or perhaps controversy around um, universal design for learning. And I think really at the core of that is it feels like our academic freedom as, as teachers is being threatened, right? This sort of, you know, where, where teaching is an art in this context or sort of presented from that 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 perspective it can feel that can feel threatened like you're, you're taking away from me this flexibility that i i have always relied on to be a good teacher um what, do you want to add to that sean another piece i hope we demystify um in this this mini series on udl and accessibility and equity because i know for you curry uh just in knowing you and the conversations we've had and for me i i know that the way that I deliver content and the way that I design assignments is so important to me and and having that freedom to do it the way that I feel is best and that that is, uh, you know, in tune with my style is probably the best part of the job besides seeing students go on and succeed and come back and have great stories. So I, I really value that freedom and I really embrace it. But hopefully by the end of this, we'll see that implementing um, UDL principles doesn't really handcuff you. It actually uh, gives you more freedom to, uh, to express your way of teaching, but in different and new and exciting ways, not just for the students, but for you as well. Yeah, totally. And I, you know, so something I wanna interrogate in, the, in this series along those lines is, uh, maybe something consistent in conversations about UDL is, um, you know, making, making experiences um, immediately accessible in the sense that students have, don't have to spend a lot of time looking around for where things are supposed to be turned in or like where to find things. Um, we want to keep things simple enough to where they can get straight into the learning. And that sounds really great, but, but I think something I've struggled with a lot in my experiences working with um, you know, the online education initiative, going to different conferences for teaching online, um, is it, it almost feels like this sort of, you know, conformity is being promoted. And, and when we all move to Canvas, you know, it's, it's, we did that to kind of 
have this sort of vanilla experiences for students, this universal kind of basic course that when students go from class to class, they're familiar with it. A lot like they are going from classroom to classroom. There's always a door, there's a lectern at the front, there's a whiteboard, there's seats, right? Um, but, but again, like, like you're saying, I'm hoping in these conversations, that's something that we can, we can really look at um, closely and demystify. Um, is universal design about conformity or is universal design about really increasing opportunities and what's possible? Um, so yeah, so that's something I'm looking forward to. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to just hearing the different perspectives from different purviews and different ways of approaching this same concept, right? Because it is, uh, it is about providing a better service to our students and better teaching and learning experiences. And so, you know, we're going to, we're going to first hear from our DSPS specialists and then you know talking to teachers about this and how they implement this and what that means to them um, professors in the classroom our instructors uh, other folks who are involved in accessibility efforts and then hearing from students right so yeah. i think after these conversations we'll have a much better idea of the efficacy of things like udl and accessibility across the board yeah absolutely absolutely and and so in this in this episode we really want to push uh, uh, on this this sort of maybe uh, um, um, false way of thinking about accessibility and, and really question the checklist, right? So really get to the why. Why are we um, formatting headers? Why are we captioning videos, all that stuff? Um, and, and, and what I'm hoping we get out of this is um, exciting new possibilities, right? By having this conversation with um, our guests about accessibility, on the other side of it, can we come out with, with with um, motivation, with inspiration um, for coming at teaching as an art with accessibility in mind. Well, let's jump into it. There's some oh. safety, there's some safety and danger. So let's do it. All right, let's do it. <laughs> so thank you, Aaron and I appreciate being here, uh, us being here and being invited to the podcast. You know, Aaron and I uh, have both uh, been here more of recent. I've been here for about a year as the faculty director for DSPS, and and Aaron uh, has been here for the past couple months. Has been supporting us throughout the year, but we both reflected individually and I think to us together as it relates to accessibility interest faculty and staff have related to it and and kind of not just the how but the why has been something that we've observed coming from other places that we see a, just a great benefit to so i think you know our challenge and opportunity is to find ways in which we can support the faculty and staff and obviously students when we work with them individually but uh, more instruct from an instructional design element as well to help address accessibility so it's not so fearful as far as what what needs to be done yeah thank you jeff and Aaron, did you did you want to add anything and introduce yourself to the audience? I don't introduce. Um, so I don't have much to add. Let's say what Jeff was going on, but I will introduce myself. So I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I'm relatively new to Maricosa. I've been here for about three months full time, but have been uh, assisting for the last year or so in the DSPS program. And I'm the access specialist. So kind of want to describe what that really means. Most of my my work is done working directly with students and, and providing them with alternate format materials or teaching them how to use what's called assistive technology, uh, specialized technology and tools for them to be able to access the computer. But the other, the other aspect of my job is really to support faculty and staff here at the college in creating accessible content being a resource to provide information on accessibility and uh, web accessibility, captioning 
um, accessible documents and, and instructional content. So yeah. thanks for having us. Yeah, for sure. So, so I think that's a good place to start. The Jeff, you mentioned kind of, you know, there's a need to eliminate the fear factor for, for faculty just starting this process. And then Aaron, you know, you're describing a set of resources that really assist students. I would say in a way that I, at least I feel this way as an instructor, that I, it's not really a part of what I do. It's there's these sort of this assistive technology or these resources, maybe a note taker um, that's happening. I may be aware of it or not. Students are accessing my course as other students are accessing my course. So um, I guess the question is, where is the good, where is the place that faculty ought to be starting to think about universal design as it relates to accessibility? Should we be starting with this kind of go through, make sure all my semantic headers are formatted, that my videos are captioned, just sort of like the checklist stuff? Or, or do, you, do you think there's value in, in starting by thinking about universal design as more of a framework? And, and how does that, how would we do that with regards to uh, students who require assistive resources and technologies? So I really, I think you really want to start by looking at like universal design as a framework, because it's going to start to check some of those accessibility check boxes by itself. And so that's really, that's really the way that, that we look at it, especially from our program here is accessibility isn't just something that you add on to something that you've already created. It it comes from from the start. So if you if you start thinking about accessibility or, or really don't even think about it as accessibility, you more look at it as, as universal design. And you start in that in that mindset, most of your material is going to come out as accessible because you've already been thinking about the ways in which different students access your material. So a student with a learning disability might access your material in a different way than a student without. But if you're thinking about all the different ways that students learn when you're creating your content you're already accommodating that student with a learning disability. There's nothing new, unique about them other than they learn a little bit differently than a standard student, but they're still gonna be in that range of kinesthetic or you know, visual or auditory. So if you're providing a bunch of different modes of learning, you're meeting that student's need without having to address, specifically address them. And that's where we like to start out at. So there are always going to be times when you have a specific circumstance where maybe you thought of all the tools and you really come from that universal design background and there's still one student or so that, that can access that material. And that's where DSPS comes in and we help provide accommodations for that student. But what we're really looking at is if you start from universal design, you're, those checkboxes start falling out of the way. They're not even ones that you have to worry about checking off. You know, we, we, we look at, you know, the angle of, of ramps, you know, for wheelchair users or some of these elements that would typically, you know, stairs being barriers to, to access and, you know, use of ramps, you know, uh, and the, the ADA requirements, you know, more being kind of, you know, to the code elements, the technical requirements, but really the functional benefit of the ramp really applies to, to multiple types of individuals and multiple types of circumstances. So when we kind of break apart, you know, UDL and the benefits that it can apply not only to, to individuals with disabilities, but students from different cultural backgrounds, English language learners, you know, uh, access to technology, working, you know, individuals, you know, the benefits are, are far greater than than trying to mitigate the legal aspects of of how and why to provide access to a smaller, let's say, group of, of individuals. Thank you. Yeah, I mean that the ramps example really speaks to the principles, you know, the 
principle one of the equitable use and and the principle of um, low physical effort, right? And that being equitable as well. So thanks for adding that. I kind of want to circle back to uh, something that Aaron was talking about with checkboxes. And, you know, sometimes it could feel like the work of accessibility and making your course accessible is, is kind of a checkbox process. Can we talk a little bit about how maybe checkboxes versus the ongoing process of creating accessible materials and, and diverse materials for students. And, and maybe also if we can um, explore the idea of why is it important for uh, faculty to have the willingness to adapt to, to you know, these student needs and also the willingness to be flexible in the ways that they deliver content and maybe the way they assess work as well. To me, the checkboxes is, it, it's almost like a choice or a mindset. It's, it's a choice on how you want to look at it. And I know, like, there are parts of accessibility that are legal requirements, right? So there, there are parts of accessibility where there's no way to avoid it. You, you have to do some of these things because of the law, right? So that's, that is one way to look at it. And I kind of, I personally think that might be kind of the more negative way to look at it. That's more of like, okay, what is it that I have to do? I think in quite honestly, what I've, what I've seen here in Maricosa, which has made me really excited to work here is a lot of us look at it from why should I be doing those things? And when we start thinking about like why those checkboxes exist, then we start realizing that we, they really fall back. And I know I keep, we talk about universal design, we're going to keep saying it, but like, it really does fall back that if you start looking at why those checkboxes exist, they, they, they exist because of that, those reasons of universal design, like they come directly from there. And so you can choose how you want to look at it. If you start looking at it as checkboxes, you also start looking at it as an afterthought. You start looking at it as, okay, I've made my content. Does it meet this requirement? Rather than I'm making my content, how are my students going to access it? What students are going to be in this class? For my 100 level class, I can probably do different things than my maybe 200 level you start to think about it, I'm sure as professors, is you're gonna know your students are gonna have some sort of background when they get into your course. And some of them, you now have no clue what their background is going to be. Um, and right. so you have to adapt your your lessons and your material to the students that are gonna be in that class, regardless of disability or not. Another example that really works right in this kind of, is it a checkbox or not, is, is uh, captioning. So a lot of time we think of captioning as something that we do for students who are deaf or hard of hearing, but we really look at it as the losses I have to caption this stuff. So now I got to go back and caption all my content. But what we have started to see, and I mean, I'm, I'm sure that all of us do it in our personal life. I have captions on 80% of the time when I'm watching Netflix, right? Like right. I don't need to, but that accent is hard for me to understand. So I have the captions on. Now I've got what it is. Right. That person's speaking really quietly or in the background and I might've missed it in that one scene. So I rewind it, turn the captions on. I have access to that content. Or I have a lot of background noise, right? And I, <laughs> I, I can't actually listen to this. I need to read what's going yeah. on. My, my son or daughter is sitting there taking their class on Zoom and I wanna be able to watch this video. I turn the captions on. Right. Um, so we've, we've seen this tool that we said we designed for people and that are, that are hard of hearing or who are deaf that need these things. And it's turned into a tool that made convenience for everybody. And it's provided a whole bunch more access. And then on top of that, we see some students who 
reading that material while they're listening to it provides an even greater understanding of the material. So we're also providing access to students who learn in a different manner. So you've you've really like created this universal thing that when we think about it, it was a checkbox. And it's really one of the last checkboxes we check in a lot of cases is, oh, let me get captions for those videos. But we provided access to all different kinds of scenarios and students and many of whom were never going to walk through a DSPS office. Yeah. And I, I just want to throw a quick another example in there. Canvas now has this feature at the top of most pages where you can click alternative modes of experiencing that content and you can download an MP3 of a screen reader reading through your text. And I've started to click on that. And, and for the first time, I'm hearing what my Canvas course sounds like to be read. And it's sort of the uh, like the inverse of what you're describing with captions, right? Um, what I'm used to watching and listening to, I can now read. This is giving me a, an access to content that I can now hear. And so I guess this mindset you're describing, Aaron, where I think there's a lot of value is maybe first doing something for accessibility because we have to, but then having the, the open-mindedness to then experience it so, so that we can know what it's like to be the receiver of this information, to be uh, uh, to participate in that kind of space so that we can be more adaptive, right? That, that's, that's what I'm really excited about because I'm just not satisfied with clicking that little circle man in Canvas and saying, oh, it's accessible. I got the balloons. I'm good. Like, I want to know, like, how are all my students experiencing this stuff? Aaron and I were talking about that today. It's an interesting, I think, process to go through your own Canvas page as, as, as objectively as you can. Put yourself in the place of a student. And if you have the opportunity as an instructor to kind of peer review or go through other instructors within the department, oftentimes with students that we see, it's not so much a disability related issue. It's just, especially right now, they're taking five different courses from five different instructors who have five different styles of a Canvas page, which isn't altogether bad, but when there's familiarity with one type of system or process, it may be easier structurally to find certain things versus someone else that might, you know, it's a page, it was thrown up there, the content is there, but harder to navigate through. For many students with certain types of conditions, it's not just difficult. Okay, that was difficult for me to find what I needed on the AAA page or whatever you know, right. uh, the, the the Costco page. You know, right. I am I'm spending hours of my time trying to figure something out, whereas I'm missing all of the content, all of the value of the class because I'm more dealing with trying to access the technology, and not just from an accessibility standpoint, right. purely from kind of a, a design element. So that's something I think we're trying to encourage a little bit more, just like you, know, you kind of mentioned is encouraging faculty go through their own pages to see where those kind of barriers or gaps might be. Um, and, and, and to consider that adaptation. Um, I don't want to cut Aaron off because he was really I think, mentioning really important things. But I think it is that question, kind of the second part of the question, Sean, as far as, you know, why do these things and I think it has to be intentional. Is this more a matter of kind of the traditional way of students need to adapt to my teaching style, my counseling style, or do I need to kind of purposefully and intentionally seek out how the student might learn in my class, how they're learning from my counseling appointment? Is this working? And then do you care enough to adapt and, and to apply any change to you know, obtain a different outcome and for that student? when we look at our metrics and our data on retention and some of the matriculation aspects, what does that tell us? And, you know, how do we, you know, do we honestly look internally to, to consider, you know, what part do I play in that? 
how much does that course outline of record give me freedom to teach in various ways to meet the objectives and to evaluate and assess a student's knowledge, but it provides a lot of opportunity for, for adaptation and kind of individuality, you know, when, when I think we see it. And again, I say that from a counseling perspective too, um, you know, behooves us to not, to not uh, kind of look introspectively at some of those things. And to kind sure. of piggyback off of what you were saying, Jeff, with the, like the course outline of record and how we can, how we can get that one of the things that I'm always looking at, so alternate media wise, right? I work with uh, the faculty sometimes because we have we have some students who maybe can't access a certain assignment or something like that. And one of the things that we're always looking at when I start that conversation with the faculty member is is not what exactly is the assignment per se, but more what are you what are you wanting the student to demonstrate? What knowledge and what skill are you looking for from that student? Because you might have had an assignment where you thought I've got this incredibly awesome graphic, this 3D image, and it's it's really great. And it's and for 90% of our students, it's probably going to provide a better learning uh, way to learn that material. But you're using that to to demonstrate, to ask the students to demonstrate something for you, or to demonstrate some sort of knowledge for you. And so that's really the end goal, right? Is that knowledge or that that piece of information or that process, not the tool you use to gather it. And so right. then we start talking to the faculty member together to figure out, can I, can I ask a student for that same type of information in another way that they have access to? And so, especially with online courses, um, I think we have to challenge ourselves to do that even more because we have no clue how students are accessing our information. Uh, when I start to think about like accessibility and universal design, one of the big things um, when we start looking at outside of just looking at students with disabilities, we've got students who maybe only have a cell phone or maybe they only have a Chromebook and they don't have access to the internet very well at home. They're not, they're not accessing it the same way that you and I are on our two monitors with our really nice fancy computer. And so when they start looking at your Canvas assignments on their cell phone, it might not come out in the same way that you kind of expecting them to be able to experience it. Um, so being able to adapt and being able to really understand what is it that I'm asking of my students and then assignments from that, you know, you can create different assignments and different types of material from that, but not always being so stuck on this is how I want to test for that certain thing, or this is the only way that I can get that knowledge or information. Hey there, Sean and I would like to introduce a new feature to the podcast, where he and I try to explain something really complicated, really interesting, in under two minutes. We call it the two, two Today, we're explaining universal design for learning. Can we do it in less than two minutes? Personally, I'm doubtful. Okay, three, two, one, go. When we say design, what are we talking about? We're separating content from structure. Okay, so like separating a fridge from the food inside? Yes, we're thinking less about the food you like, the food I like, and we're thinking more about how best to store the food. Oh, two doors or one door. Trees are on top, on bottom, on the side, how deep, how tall, how many shelves. What about a built-in waffle maker? Sure, but who wants a fridge with a waffle maker? Um, some people might. That's narrow design. Okay, so when we talk about universal design. We're talking about making a fridge safe, simple, comfortable to use, a fridge that works for all cultural groups and individual abilities, a fridge that fits any kitchen. Gotcha. The goal of universal design is to design products and, and spaces that accommodate every individual and end all the inequities. Wait, a fridge can do that? Well, designing to prioritize inclusive design choices can certainly work toward that. Right on. Okay, so universal design applied to learning will work towards a similar goal for curriculum development. Give all individuals equal opportunities to learn. 
Universal Design for Learning is a framework hinged together by cognitive science and educational research that observes how all people learn. UDL is not a prescriptive checklist or formula, but a guiding set of principles oriented around engagement, representation, and action expression that advocates for flexibility at the core of teaching and learning. Wow. A UDL approach is mindful of the context teachers and learners bring to the classroom and seeks to promote and sustain multiple modes of learning as well. So what does all that mean to you? To me, it means universal design is a process, not necessarily a product or an endpoint. Universally designed spaces and products created today will look differently in the future. Right, and that's because there will always be opportunities to reflect on user experiences and then re-engage a process of research, problem solving, innovation, and redesign. As teachers, the process begins with a reflection on who our students are. And which of our students our course design serves. And then collaborating with colleagues. And then engaging research. To problem solve. To innovate. And redesign. So that we can diversify sharing. Demonstrate learning in different ways. And increase the ways students engage with our courses. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Fucking A. Nice, dude. Oh my goodness, we made it! Good job, <laughs> virtual fist bump. And that was the two, two minute game. Yeah, I, I I like what you both bring up there because it feels like with certain tools, and this kind of goes to a discussion of you know, tools and pedagogy, right? And and the ways that we teach and then the tools that we use to try to um, teach those things. And we can become enamored with certain tools, certainly, and, you know, even tools that are inaccessible, right? And we also become overwhelmed with the abundance of choices of tools that are out there. So, and, and Canvas is a tool itself. And we look at how uh, Canvas has those multiple entry points. And I think that speaks to what Jeff was talking about. Like, we, we don't know how they're navigating our course, even if we have a video, even if we show and demonstrate how we, how we want them to navigate the course, there's different ways they can access the material. So can you maybe talk about the distinction and the differences between having, you know, a lot of different options for students and overwhelming them with choice versus really being selective and intentional so that you are following UDL principles. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, Cause it's, it, it's hard, right? You're always looking to provide, let's say the latest or the greatest and you're always, so, so when you do that, you, you see a lot of different tools that become slightly different from each other, um, have their own pluses and minuses usually. And so then you're like, well, this one's great at that. So I'm going to use this one. And then, but that one's a little bit better at this. So I want to try to tie this in. And I think it, it's a personal preference, but I, I want to go back to what Jeff said earlier, that, that experience for the student being somewhat consistent is also a huge thing. Um, so if a student's having to learn three different tools to take one course, we're taking away the amount of time that they can learn the, the content of the course. And now we're putting that on learning these tools. Um, so like, I'm gonna go to assistive technology. I just wanna bring something up. So we have some assistive technology. A student who can't see, let's say, or who is legally blind might use a tool called Fusion. And they'd use what's called JAWS, which is a, a it's called a, it's a screen reader. So they operate the computer without the monitor on whatsoever. And so that student, to be able to take your course on Canvas, they can't just learn how to, 
take sociology or psychology or English, they have to learn first how to use JAWS, the software that's going to give them access to the computer. Then they have to learn how Canvas works. And then now that they know how JAWS works, now they know how Canvas works, then they get to go and take your English course and actually try to learn English. So let's back that out and look at that for a different student, a student who is really not too tech savvy or a student who is using their cell phone or using a Chromebook and not having full access to all the tools that we have on a computer. They have to figure out how to access your course and then they got to learn the material. They have to learn the material in your course. And so that's what I think we have to weigh as, as instructors or as, as people who are teaching other people, we have to weigh how much the tool is worth versus how much the student's going to have to invest in that tool before they get to the content. And, and that's really something that only you as the professor can make that determination, in my opinion, on. Um, but it's something that I think if you keep in your mind as you're working and you're trying to decide which one to use, it then might make it a little bit more clear as to, okay, maybe I'll stick with this one because it might, isn't quite as good as those other ones, but it's so much easier to use and so much more you know, user-friendly that the students are going to get more out of it in the end rather than spending 10 hours learning the tool and five hours learning English, they'll spend 10 hours learning English and five hours learning the tool. Like, so those kinds of things, I think, is what you have to think about. Yeah, I, I'd second what Aaron's sharing. I think, you know, it's 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 also, you know, from a technical standpoint, Aaron can provide you, and we have those resources that kind of provide those recommendations for how to structure certain things within Canvas or with an award document that has kind of the application towards, you know, individuals, sorry, individuals who, who might be using some type of software to access the program. Um, but really those same elements, again, they benefit you know, kind of everybody. Um, Technology is getting better as well. You know, there's accessibility checkers now that you know, used to be you develop, you'd write everything up and then you hit the button, you know, PDF or Adobe still has that now, you know, and, and then you you measure how accessible a document is and you have to go back and change things. You know, now there's tools that do that kind of more on the fly. So I think technology is great in many ways. It's also dangerous as well. Um, but I think, you know, Aaron and I, again, we're talking about this, you know, students all have access to Office 365. So using some types of programs that are consistently available and free, big difference between, you know, Office products or Word versus, let's say, Google and use of Google Docs and Google Sheets, you know speaking from experience of having to help my high schooler with that now, it's a whole new world of, of trying to figure out, I know we just submitted this assignment, but, you know, and, and the anxiety. So I think it's that sense of, how much do we factor the other person and how they might be going through this? What senses of anxiety and stress might they encounter? And maybe how can I, even if I want to use these tools and these resources, how can I provide information to students on the front end about the expectations or the design of the class? Um, here are the things that we're going to be using. Here are some of the help you know, functions or contact information for help um, that you might need accessibility of the instructor. So things that have nothing to do with technology, but are just those access elements that can give people peace and some pause to be able to say, you know, I, I know I'm going to, if I run into trouble, I know where I can go to get some help. That affects stress, but it also affects performance, you know, in a class. More often than not, we're seeing students, you know, doing withdrawals because of the stress related to, you know, outside elements. But also just uh, speaking from experience, so just some of these components of, I know the material, I like the class, I'm just having a hard time maneuvering around within it and I'm spending more time on that. I don't wanna contact my instructor because I don't wanna bother them. So there's these pieces 
And um, I think there's there's unintentionally, you know, there are folks are getting lost in this. Again, not through anybody's direct fault, but um, because of all the variety of both students, but also teaching in, in technology as well. Yeah, and so maybe as just a final question, we can push on that a little more. So the the relationships that we develop with our students as instructors or as counselors, right? And what we do in the class to increase participation. What so what what can we be thinking about so that we're being a we're being more responsive or as responsive to abilities as we are to say cultural experiences, right? Um, and I guess what I mean by that is I'm thinking of this email we just got um, from Jody Mahal um, about Abilities Awareness Month that's coming up. And there's several events planned around not just awareness of abilities and not just sort of, you know, awareness of rights and activism, but really a celebration of communities and identities and, and, and being, right? The, you know, ontologies, et cetera. So, so what, what can we be thinking about as faculty and as counselors to increase in, you know, a student's, not just their confidence and comfort and, and familiarity with course design, but, but you know, their, inspire them to participate and engage in that class community. Are there topics that we can be thinking about? Um, maybe, you know, uh, I don't know, theories we should be considering? What, what comes to mind? And when you, when you answer this, can you start with giving our audience an idea of what abilities, what that term means to you? Yeah, that'd be awesome. That's a good question. And what abilities mean to me are things that I think it's in a personal sense of what, and and subjective too, as far as what a individual feels confident in, you know, disability being kind of the converse of it. Um, You know, what somebody senses to be a strength that they might have. It's more as a positive, you know, what their abilities are versus their limitations. Again, kind of the converse being the disability. So there is kind of a bit, if it's interesting, you mentioned that the the celebration of abilities and ability awareness month versus disability awareness month and it's i think it's that same concept from a culturally responsive and just responsive teaching is that if you are looking at teaching and students with the celebration of diversity versus conformity to the class and to their peers and to my teaching my instructional style then then i think that's a positive if you're celebrating that sense of diversity and so i think you know in many ways fortunately we're moving in that direction of of you know looking at equity and in diversity in a more positive light but i think it interconnects very well with the universal design ele- component you know, elements of which you are trying to teach to and allow expression of knowledge through multiple different ways, multiple different cultural identities and different perceived either real or unreal strengths that someone might have. So whereas there might be an emphasis in an English class naturally for more writing, um, you know, in other courses, are there different ways to express and demonstrate knowledge of something within a history, within a sociology class, art, and a number of different subjects in which the learning objectives can have some adaptation to be expressed and, and to be measured in different ways. But I think it truly is that celebration of diversity in different styles of learning versus again, kind of that sense of kind of conformity, weeding one in versus weeding out. And going back to the like abilities versus disability, like trying to have the abilities awareness model. I mean, to me, you're, you're looking at, at people as in the way in which 
they accelerate in which they, they feel confident. Again, like Jeff was talking about, whereas when we talk about disability, we're talking about what a, what a person can't do or what we perceive them to not be able to do. Um, and then there's an expectation that like, because a person has a disability, there's something they, they can't do rather than they do something else better. Like um, an example I always like to use, uh, I had a friend who lost their sight and their hearing became an incredible tool that they didn't have before. So for them, the ability to hear was was so much more enhanced when they lost their vision. Now, everybody focuses on his vision loss and not like what changed, um, but we could be three blocks away from a major street and he could spin in a circle and he could tell me exactly what direction traffic was flowing. There's no way I could do that. I can close my eyes and pretend to not have vision and try to do that and I can't do that. Um, so when we look at the people's abilities, there's, there's ways in which people excel and that they're, that they feel strongly in or that they can, things that they can do that maybe some of us don't really recognize that we can do. And that comes sometimes be, because quite honestly, they have a disability and they have adapted and they have figured out other ways to strengthen themselves that other students or other people haven't had to do. And so we're celebrating kind of that, that skill set that they've learned or that skill set that they've brought to themselves and found out about themselves that has provided that ability for them to kind of be even better in some ways than maybe they would have had they not had a disability or something like that. I did want to piggyback one more thing on the um, kind of going back to our prior question when we were talking about tools that professors maybe have a bunch of different tools to choose from when they're picking to, to do something. Um, and I wanted to bring up one, one example of what's happened recently here. Um, so getting ready for the fall semester, an instructor who is in a networking, a CS, a computer science networking course, uh, was looking into a tool that would allow his students to participate in a lab, a virtual lab environment. And so the tool had a, a bunch of really, I mean, it was this really neat tool where it had all of the different cables and computer components, and you would drag and drop them to create the network environment that you wanted to create. Really one of the only ways virtually that that, that professor could have students connect the data center that they would physically do in the classroom virtually. And for certain aspects of that class, it made a lot of sense that there might not be too many other ways to test that knowledge. Like there's, it's gonna be really difficult to try to design something that makes sense to all the students and still is, is, is testing that, that specific information. And so what happened is the professor actually, they, we got looped in as DSPS and I was able to work with the company for the software and we got to test its accessibility. Cause at this point we decided and this professor decided this is the best tool. There really isn't a better tool. But at the same time, we, there was a recognition that there might be some cases where this tool doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And so let's see what the tool can and can't do. So that's what we did. We tested the tool. We found out what it can and can't do. And there were some very limited cases where if we ran across a student who had a certain skill set, they might not be able to access the material. So instead of waiting until that happened, Jeff can probably explain more about this, but we worked as a department to figure out what can we do if it comes up that we're going to have that type of student so that we're not trying to figure that out while the semester's going on. We already have like an accessibility plan in place. We have an accommodation in place. We know what we do in that scenario. And that student would be able to seamlessly be able to figure out some other way of demonstrating that knowledge, but it wouldn't take away from the rest of the course, which this was one of the best tools you could possibly offer for that. So that's another thing that I think 
Jeff and I and our entire department are really like think is really important. We, we understand that there's sometimes when there's going to have to be accommodation, but we want to be ready for it. And we want to think about it ahead of time so that the student gets the same experience everybody else does. And we're not asking, and the accessibility and universal design is never asking you to remove something from the majority of your students. It's just to make sure that we're ready in case something else happens as well, so that the big majority of your students still get to take advantage of it and everybody's included. Right. And so it's not about sacrificing your favorite things, right? It's about making sure there's room and space and flexibility to have that experience translate for a student that that will not have that same type of way of learning, perceiving, accessing, or even demonstrating the the uh, the elements of that content or assignment, right? Exactly. And and Jeff, did you want to add something? And then maybe also if you had any messages for uh, faculty or, or students who may be listening about your office and, and uh, the work that y'all are doing there? Sure, no, thank you. I, um... Yeah, no, I, I th it, it is that it's trying to find and I think it's recognizing through the practices of equity that, you know, it is not necessarily an equal playing field and that we do have to do some things through a collective effort to help provide a more equitable learning experience uh, for students. So, um, you know, there are a number of tools. And I think as we continue as a department and, 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 and we obtain more information about what can be helpful, we'll continue to, try to push information out. We're really, I think, very good with students. You know, what I think we're building more now is what things we can refine to help instructors. But it all starts, Sean, I think with that that interest, that inquiry-based kind of willingness and intention to support students um, when there are these more diverse and unique needs. Um, and it, if there is an openness to that, boy, that, that helps take care of a lot to then ask the questions, okay, now what's another way we can do this versus trying to bang against that wall about why we shouldn't do it. Um, so again, we appreciate the opportunity to come on today and share some of our experiences and to hear those of others. Um, our office is is um, open to and accessible to students, um, uh, staff, and faculty. We're, the best way of getting a hold of us, I think, hate to say it sounds so impersonal, but I think it's through our website. It's the www.miracosa.edu uh, slash or backslash DSPS. From there, we have our personal contact information on there. We really want to reach out or sorry, be accessible to everybody from an individual from a very personal standpoint. So uh, certainly we have ways for students to apply for services. And I think the other caveat just to add on there for everybody to know, again, is that DSPS, what we are called here, is at every single college in this country. So four-year institutions, Harvard, Yale, San Diego State, Miracosta College, we all do this. This is nothing unique to California. Or I shouldn't say Miracosta, but um, I think we're doing some unique things here. But um, these services and these efforts are are um, universal, at least across this country. So um, nothing to be you know worried about there from a usage standpoint. Um, so yeah. So again, kind of point of contact our website, and and again, anything we can do to help students and and faculty, uh, that that's our goal. Right on, Jeff and Aaron. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. For thank you. Us. Thanks for your opportunity, guys. I feel like this one's going to help a lot of people out there. So yeah. we appreciate it. Just, I, just, I want to thank you guys. This has been a really cool experience. Um, since I am new to Maricosa, uh, you know, all you, Sean, Curry, James, and, and Kelly, it's nice to uh, to see you guys reach out to us. That was like, it was really, really welcoming for me <laughs> as a new person. Um, 
kind of refreshing too. Um, it's usually, it usually feels like we're kind of beating on the door to say, hey, come on, let us in, let us try to help. Um, so you guys reaching out really means a lot and uh, I really do appreciate it. So Sean, this, this notion of accessible content is good for everyone. Um, how, how does that look? How does that work for you as a teacher? How does that work for your students? What does that look like in your class? I mean, first off, I'm just going to kind of go to the selfish reasons. My course looks a lot better and more organized when I'm using headers and they're appro appropriately and properly formatted. So, I mean, I just like the visual of it. It looks like I've taken the time and I kind of know what I'm doing because it looks like the other accessible materials that you find on uh, websites, right? And, and other spaces that are polished and professional in that way. Because look, we're discipline experts, right? I'm a sociologist. You know, your, your, your specialties in literature and writing. It, we are not specialists in accessibility, but when we engage in this, it does give us a more polished professional presentation. Now that's for us, but for our students, I feel like it is giving the, the, the justice to those who are using screen readers so they can access the material in, in a way that makes sense to that screen reader and then, you know, makes sense to them. So I, I, that's important, but also having different ways of being able to assess students, it, it, it's not that much of a hassle. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like having um, these options, you can always have options for the students, like you can demonstrate your learning X, Y, Z ways, right? Yeah. And then that opens it up for a lot of different types of learners and people who have different learning preferences and people who have learning disabilities. And so I, I you know, thinking about that as I'm designing something, I don't feel like I'm grading like a third, like if I have three options, like a third this way, a third this way, a third this way. Most people are going to select one way. And right. then it's a few assignments that you'll have that are going to be able to accommodate other students. And what I find is just like with late work or other things, I'm not bombarded with like this, right. this, you know, uh, uh, so much extra work. It's usually a couple of students that need this in a different way. And it doesn't actually take as much time as what I imagined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so by a different way, you mean like post a video instead of write write an essay or that that kind of thing? Yeah, or or getting the the captions, you know, um, processed through uh, Canvas Studio for your video, and then making sure that they are correct. Yeah. And then also, if I have a kind of, you know, I have an infographic assignment in one of my classes. But if I do that, if I, if I can change that into an essay assignment sure. for those who are uh, visually impaired, then th it's not that much of an extra step for me to grade or, or format that assignment in that way for the very small number of students that I'm going to encounter that need that. Totally. And I, I find, you know, just as with everything with teaching, especially with getting to, you know, feedback to back to students, I, I just have a system that, that emerges, right? Uh, you know, I'll, yes. I'll grade the essays first and just those because I have a nice system. And then the videos that students chose to do, those are next because that'll have another kind of system. I'm using the same rubric, right? But just my own process for, you know, reading or hearing or whatever. Um, if I put those in little categories, it speeds me up. And like you said, it just turns out it doesn't take that much more time. Um, right. And when you have like a really cool assignment, like an infographic assignment, 
you know, you want everybody to engage in it in a certain way, but when you know the reality is not everyone can, yeah. then, you know, coming up with an alternative, I think, is a duty that we have as, as teachers and as people who want the best for our students. No, totally. For me, you know, so you mentioned our discipline. Um, for me, you know, uh, uh, visual rhetoric, even like procedural rhetoric, which is, you know, more what we see playing out in like video games and things. So, you know, these, yeah. these compelling designs that have the capacity to also uh, uh, entice us, even persuade us, right? To get us to think about things, feel things. That That's definitely in my ballpark in terms of discipline. Um, and it's something that I've always wanted to do, like really practice in my course design. This this initially was a source of frustration for me um, when, when I started encountering, you know, uh, uh, um, guidelines for increasing accessibility. Um, or even these sort of rubrics on course design, because I want to resist that stuff. I'm like, get the fuck out of my, my space, right? I know how to do this. I know how to design this, right? Oh. Um, but so I'll give you two examples. Um, one, videos for me, I've always like, you know, I use, <laughs> I use like PowerPoint and, you know, paint, Microsoft paint. I, it's just super, super like do it yourself. But I like that as an aesthetic, like you can tell. Um, and I take some of my time with this stuff. So it, there's some animation and, but I also don't want it to sound very stilted. So I never wanted to do the script thing, right? That, so that advice, like, you know, you're going to have to caption this. So start with a transcript and blah, blah, blah. I wanted it to sound like I'm in the classroom talking with my students, right? Um, and, but, but inevitably, and I'm sure our listeners are so frustrated with me every time I talk because I have this stutter, right? Um, <laughs> and so, but in the video, um, that, you know, what, what should be a two minute video always was four minutes because it's me fumbling over my words and trying to get the, get out the right way to say it. So when I started to work with transcripts, I started realizing all this dead space. And so if I wow, made the yeah. video and then worked on the transcript, really fine tuned that thing, it has my inflections in there because it's from my voice, right? Then I can use the visual. Transcript. Yeah, 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 exactly. So then the transcript then basically becomes the source of my second draft. And so my so embracing accessibility and really practicing, um, 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 you know, captioning when I create videos, for me, it's just become part of my creation process, right? The, the first recording, I don't even worry, worry about it. It's just a first go. Then I get the transcript, then that becomes the source of my real sort of, you know, I'm going to produce this video now. Um, and what I've also found, it's so hard to update videos, right? I mean, they take forever to create, like lectures we've created. We just leave them. They're like 10 years old now. I don't want to go back and redo it. But if you start with the transcript, you're already ahead of the game, right? So, so changing a little bit of your visuals, updating the transcript, you can record a video so much faster. And it sounds like you because it came from your voice in the first place. So that's well, definitely one way accessibility or, or sort of this approach to making content accessible really has, I think, improved my teaching at, uh, online, for sure. I, I, think it, I think it makes your teaching more authentic, too, because you're all about process in the way that you teach students. But the way that you're learning is what you're saying right now is also through that same process. Draft, revise, you know, draft again, right? And it's kind of that same thing. It's not linear for you. And, and, and that's really great. And, and 
just as you said that 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 connection that it's kind of baked into what you um, you know what, what your expertise is is you know the the visual rhetoric the 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 uh, reading those words on the screen or on the page and what that means and and making sure that it's meaningful to your audience you know equity is something that a lot of people assume and and rightly assume that is built into what my discipline does right sociology right yeah, but that doesn't mean we don't need to go back to class. That doesn't mean we don't need to keep up on what's going on because, you know, it, it's a constant process. And again, that's modeling for students that that ethos of lifelong learning and that college is really preparing you to learn better as opposed to for a degree and a job, because those are those are, of course, abundantly important. But but there's there's this greater uh, idea of are you always going to have learning as as one of your primary objectives throughout the rest of your life and can we help you learn better through the process right and right. and um yeah i mean i wish i had a better way to say that but i think everybody understands what i what i mean there yeah. um so yeah i'm really interested to see where we're going to go next with this and hearing from other groups how about you yeah, for sure. And I just want to piggyback on that really quickly. Um, you know, you mentioned audience, and this is another thing that, you know, in, in, in composition and rhetoric, such a major concept. And I think the another way that I've benefited, not just as a teacher, but, uh, you know, as someone who studies rhetoric, is really thinking about my audience, right? And, and I know, and I'm, you know, and I'm ashamed of this, but at one, you know, at one point in my teaching, I'm assuming how I'm saying this is benefiting everybody. Right, because I'm I have good intentions behind it. Um, I'm hoping I'm trying to inspire everyone. I'm not holding anything back. I'm not biased in that way towards a certain group of students. But I, but we are right. We, I mean, I'm designing things visually that are that are the way I would express them. And before I started thinking about how students hear what I'm putting out there, how they see what I'm putting out there, how they engage with what I'm putting out there. Um, and thinking about cultural experiences and what students are bringing, et cetera. Now my audience is more defined in its sort of range and breadth. And I have, and I feel like by diving into UDL, I really have way more tools to try to target those specific groups while having the whole in mind, right? So that's kind of where we're going next. The, the, the next episode, the next conversation we wanna have is about equity and universal design and bringing with us this conversation about accessibility. Um, I'll tell you really quickly, one of the things that I'm noticing in workshops about accessibility is that there pops up this sort of, let's talk about equity too. But usually it's like, we're talking about headers, we're talking about this, you know, this other stuff, and now let's talk about equity, and now let's get back to headers. And it's, so I think what I'm hoping is you and I can kind of not separate those two things to have the conversation differently, but like let's let's really dive in as deeply into equity and universal design as we have with accessibility with uh, Aaron and Jeff, um, and then kind of take a step back and see see how those two things work together under universal design for learning principles. This episode is supported by the Miracosa Foundation's Innovation Grant. The Safe Topics podcast is produced and engineered by Kelly Barnett. James Garcia handles promotion, student recruitment, and research. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and safetopics.podbean.com. Find us on Apple and Spotify. Please rate and subscribe. Thanks for listening.